0: From Alabama to Nevada, South Dakota to Maine, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the rampant inflation that has gripped the nation for several years has cooled off. But is it a trend or a lull? Phil Kirpin from American Commitment is here with analysis. The U.S. Senate's bipartisan immigration deal has collapsed and called Mitch McConnell's leadership of Senate Republicans into question. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth is here with the real story. Is it time to allow foreign airlines to fly domestic routes in the United States? Eric Baim of Reason Magazine is here to discuss the potential benefits. And is it any longer possible for Congress to address pressing national concerns in a bipartisan manner? Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA takes a deep dive on his American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The inflation rate has dropped and the U.S. economy is showing signs of healthy growth. But is this a trend or just a pause in an ongoing inflationary cycle? Phil Kirpin is president of American Commitment. He is here now for a look at the numbers. Phil, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Phil, if we look at just numbers, if we look at the January jobs report, we look at inflation cooling off a of bit, we look at the stock market on about a what about a 4-month run up here, it would appear the economy is doing well, yet poll after poll shows the American public just doesn't seem to be feeling it. Why is that?
1: Well, I think the most fundamental reason that most people don't feel good about the economy is that wages have still not caught up with prices, which is to say the cost of living has gone up uh, much more than people's ability to pay that cost. uh, And therefore, they're behind from a standard of living standpoint where they were a few years ago. And people don't expect to be behind uh, where they were a few years ago, they expect it to rise. They expect each year to be a little bit better than the last year in terms of how far their wages go, how much they can buy with what they earn. And so uh, we have seen inflation come down from those huge high peaks that we had, but the price prices are still uh, elevated because, of course, inflation is cumulative. And until what people are making not only catches up to that, but exceeds it so that they feel like they're getting ahead again, people are not going to feel good economically. And I think that's Biden's most fundamental political uh, problem is that what people are experiencing in their household budgets, paying for the groceries, paying for the other things that they need, they don't feel that they're getting ahead. They still feel they're behind. And uh, that's why there's so much pessimism still.
0: If you look at what caused that run-up in inflation we had, and it was, what, roughly cumulative 17%, 19% over the first three years of the Biden administration here, Phil, one of the things that fueled that rapid rise in inflation was excessive spending at the federal level. Congress right now is considering yet another massive spending bill, sort of cleverly called a border security bill. Is this something that you see might just add more fuel to the inflation fire?
1: Yeah, well, that's of course uh, that's of course the big driver of inflation, and I think that we had about six trillion dollars in excess. Spending, additional spending above the normal federal spending as a response to COVID and the lockdowns and sort of all of those related policies. And uh, there's no question that about 90% of that was financed by Federal Reserve money printing, which is why we had all of the that inflationary episode that we had and then largely receded. But then under Biden, it started accelerating again. And we have significant upward pressure on federal spending again, and we're going to pay for that. Uh, We will inevitably pay for it one way or another. Either there are going to be significant increases in taxes to pay for that, and of course that has economic harm associated with it, or more likely, because this is what politicians have come to prefer over the uh, obvious hit of raising taxes, it will be monetized and we'll get another bout of inflation. It's interesting, if you look historically at what happened in the 70s, it was not just one big run up of inflation if you look at the chart it was it was a big run up and then it came all the way down and then it went back up even higher uh, than it did the first time and i do worry that we could be headed for a repeat of that that this could just be a lull before another very large inflationary episode because there's really no restraint on federal spending you know the the fiscal year that just ended this past september fiscal year 2023 spending was a trillion dollars higher than it was projected to be for that year just a couple of years ago. The last projection under the Trump administration has a trillion dollars lower. Then you got a speaker of the House who says, Oh, I've I've greatly improved upon Kevin McCarthy's spending deal because I've cut the top line spending number by sixteen billion dollars. And you look at this and you scratch your head and you kinda of say, Okay, well, I mean sixteen billion dollars is not chump change, it's better than nothing, but Spending is a trillion dollars higher than it was supposed to be, and you're you're fighting over sixteen billion dollars, and the Democrats are howling that that's too much to cut. And you know, it's just it, it feels like you're arguing over crumbs after you just ate a gigantic cake. I mean, just it it's the, the the scope and scale of the fight that they're having right now is nothing compared to the run-up in spending that we've seen. And of course, you look at the projections going forward under Biden policies, and it looks to me. Like that one-time episode that we had with all of that special one-time spending under COVID, he wants to be normal. He wants that to be kind of just the level of deficits that we're funding through Federal Reserve money printing on a normal ongoing annual basis, which would mean that we permanently have 8 9%, 10% inflation, not just as a one-time episode to get through, but just sort of as the, the cost of financing federal spending. And so I am very concerned that that could be where we're headed.
0: Speaking of the cost of financing federal spending, the Federal Reserve here, Phil, has over the past year or so, maybe a little bit longer, been steadily raising interest rates in order to cool off the economy to combat inflation. Seems to be having some effect. And they're now talking about maybe some cuts here as we go through the year. But we have these higher interest rates. This, of course, affects families if you want to get a mortgage, buy a car, whatever. Does it not also have an impact on the federal budget? You have these trillions upon trillions of dollars of debt. Don't we have to pay interest on that debt?
1: Yeah, interest expense has risen very rapidly with the higher interest rates. And interest expense is now the number one element of the federal budget, larger than the defense budget. And it's going to be around a trillion dollars for this year in interest expense. And so that certainly does – it certainly has an effect on federal finances, on household finances. It depends. If you're a saver, you love it because you're finally getting some money on your savings uh, for the first time in, in quite a long time, of course you're buying a house you hate it, And we've seen uh, home purchases really crater, really, really. I mean, just historically low levels for the simple reason that uh, everyone who's in a home and has a, you know, a two and a half or three percent mortgage, you know, they don't want to give that up and go buy a new house at seven percent. And uh, the people who are looking, therefore, they've got less purchasing power because of the interest rates, but uh, there's a lot less inventory. So prices haven't come down uh, to adjust for the higher financing costs. And so the housing market is in very weak shape. And of course, housing is a major sector of the economy, so that is another reason I think that there's there's sort of a sense of, of pessimism economically, but from the government finance perspective. Yeah, it puts a big strain on the federal budget. And, of course, the question is, do you just pay for the interest on the debt by running up more debt? And at what point do you not have real purchasers for that debt? And it ends up being the Fed that buys it, and, and uh, you monetize it, and you have another round of inflation as a consequence. So it plays into the same thing. We were just talking about about federal spending being on an unsustainable path that's probably going to lead to monetization, another round of, of uh, inflation. One of the components of that is paying all that interest.
0: Phil Kirpin is president of American Commitment. And Phil, tell us a little bit about American Commitment. Also, where can folks find you on the web?
1: Uh, We're a national free market advocacy group. We try to work on all the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues where a little bit more citizen education and engagement might make the difference. So we've got lots of model letters into regulatory agencies or into Congress weighing in on particular issues where we think it might help to have people writing in. And uh, if people want to read any of our stuff or check out the actions in our action center, everything's on AmericanCommitment.org.
0: Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. Phil, thank you for being back with us. All right, Loman, have a good one. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Big news this week out of Washington, D.C., the implosion of the so-called deal to secure the southern border. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a bit about presidential politics with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, good to have you here. It's great to be back, Loman. Thank you. Well, immigration, there was this so-called bipartisan deal. It turns out that there was significant opposition among Republicans in the U.S. Senate Want to tell us what happened that imploded this whole situation?
2: Last weekend, they released the legislative text after over a month of rumors that it was going to be released imminently. And your listeners might recall that on January 12th, there was a, a graphic that was published on Fox News, and the graphic was created by the Immigration Accountability Project. And it basically said that the immigration negotiations were going to allow 5,000 illegal aliens to cross the border every single day before these emergency uh, actions would take place to actually secure the border and that they would turn people away. It also said that if anybody had been granted a release from custody, that they were going to have immediate access to work permits. So it was basically giving illegal legal status to 10 million illegal aliens that have come through. And that's a big, big issue. So the graphic was published on Fox News, and these negotiators from Chuck Schumer and James Langford and others, they said, don't believe your lying eyes, Loman, because this information's not accurate, and wait for the legislative text to come out. We're going to secure the border, and so on and so forth. Well, but when the text did come out, it's exactly what it showed. It still showed the 5,000 illegal aliens being permitted to cross the border every single day, and that totals 1.825 million illegals. I think that was a real, real problem for them. Additionally, the size and scope and cost of that legislation totaled $118.3 billion in an emergency supplemental. That's money that's not subject to any sort of budgetary restraint. And that became a big tipping point, I think, for the Club for Growth. Club for Growth ultimately key voted against that legislation. And the conservative movement and conservative members of the House and Senate revolted against the leadership's plan to try to jam that legislation through this week. Ultimately, we saw senators one by one coming out against the proposal, and eventually Mitch McConnell himself said that he would not vote to proceed for the legislation that Chuck Schumer said he had never negotiated a closer negotiation than that one with Mitch McConnell. So it kind of threw James Langford underneath the bus, but it just shows what the political nonsenses in Washington, D.C. compared to real-world America. And I think that phones were lighting up, activist groups were activated, and ultimately the bill went down in flames this week. They did continue the negotiations, and, and we'll see exactly how that proceeds. I think that they'll probably just try to get money and make sure that they can fund Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and elsewhere. But the money is not going to just solve this problem. You need real policies that are going to fortify the border and are going to ensure that we don't have this unlimited flow of illegal aliens into America.
0: Senator Ted Cruz, among others, were highly critical of Mitch McConnell and actually calling for a change in leadership. Does this indicate that perhaps that might be on the horizon?
2: Well, I think you may recall, and the winter of 2022, after those midterm elections, there was an opposition to Mitch McConnell being reelected as the Senate majority leader. It was a, sort of a small opposition. I think ultimately 10 or 12 senators voted against McConnell in the private meeting. Nonetheless, it is indicative of this fact that McConnell does not have the unified strength of a Republican conference in his own leadership. And I think it's time for new leadership as well. We obviously have seen the the need to get new voices at the table to, to basically try to do something different. Einstein apparently said that the definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And if we're going to continue to provide for mass amnesties, I think that it's a big sign on the southern border that says, open border, come on over.
0: Let's switch gears here a little bit and talk presidential politics, Scott. NBC recently came out with a poll rather stunning in a number of ways. Particularly, it showed President Trump with opening up a, as he would say, a huge lead among independents. What do the numbers show?
2: Number one, you got to talk about Biden's approval rating, and it extends across all demographics. He's all the way down at 37%. That's the lowest that a president has had for their reelection in generations. And so I think that Biden is basically shedding independent voters from his coalition, and that's a big, big problem for him. That's why they're trying to address the border situation. But if they're going to try to maintain the radical progressive base, which is what he always tries to extend his support toward, then they're going to lose these independent voters. He's even very, very low among Hispanic voters that were surveyed Uh, by NBC. And so when you looked at the independent numbers among independents, and you recall, this is a group of voters that actually favored Joe Biden in the 2020 election. Now, Donald Trump is leading among independents, according to NBC, 48 to 29. That's a 19% lead. I think, obviously, nationally, that we are in great shape for a wave election it also showed that President Trump was leading President Biden by 5%. That's just not anything to sort of thumb your nose toward. I think that it's a, a real indication that Biden is in deep trouble for his own reelection. that we've got a real shot to win a lot of U.S. Senate races, and that we're ultimately going to hold the House of Representatives, and we're going to have unified government in 2025. That actually makes a difference for the American people in all communities.
0: Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a little bit about the club.
2: Well, Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. It's united in this idea of economic liberty and freedom and opportunity. If anybody wants to learn more, check out clubforgrowth.org where you can sign up as a member for free.
0: Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. As always, Scott, good to have you with us. Take care. All right. Thank you, Loman. Foreign airlines are prohibited by law from flying domestic routes in the United States, but would changing that create more competition and result in better service and lower prices? For the answer, we turn to Eric Baim of Reason Magazine.
3: Argentina's new president has done a lot of controversial and headline-grabbing things, but I think one of the things that's flying under the radar, flying if you'll excuse the pun, is how he's opened up Argentina to allow uh, foreign airlines to serve domestic routes within the country. That's something that we don't allow here in the United States, but it's something that we probably should, especially with the consolidation of American-based airlines in recent years. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bam with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. Uh, No guest for me this week. Instead, we're taking a little bit of a deep dive. Maybe we're taking off, I should say, into looking at this policy implemented by new Argentinian President Javier Malay that will allow foreign airlines to operate in Argentina. Basically, he's abolished the state monopoly on domestic routes in Argentina. Now, we don't have a state monopoly, obviously, on uh, domestic airlines in the United States. There's not, like, one, you know, U.S. company or or government owned entity that operates air travel in the United States. And we should be thankful for that. We do have quite a bit of competition among domestic routes, but that competition has been dwindling in recent years. Thanks to a number of mergers and acquisitions, there's really only four or five different airlines that operate truly national networks at this point. And we could allow more competition in. We could copy what Argentina's done and allow more competition from other airlines based in other countries. And I think that would be something that would ultimately benefit American consumers. To make my point, let's think about the holiday weekend that happened a month ago already, believe it or not. But over the Christmas holiday weekend and through New Year's, something like 12 million travelers poured through American airports. It was one of the busiest travel periods ever the busiest one certainly since the pandemic and the high demand for holiday travel means that you end up with snarled security checkpoints and long waits at baggage claim but it also comes with high prices the average domestic airfare over christmas was about 320 dollars this year that's according to a report from a company uh, named hopper that tracks airline prices that's actually a bit lower than it was last year average prices a year ago spiked to well over 400 dollars over the holiday weekend, over the, the Christmas holiday weekend, and through New Year's. So where does Javier Malay in Argentina fit into all of this? About a month ago, right around the holiday weekend, when all that travel was happening here in the United States, Argentina's new libertarian president announced a so-called Open Skies initiative. that Now, combined with an abolition of government price controls on airfares, that new rule is going to allow foreign airlines to directly compete with Aerolinas Argentinias, the national airline that has managed to lose a whopping $8 billion since 2008, despite the fact that it has a monopoly on domestic flights. Now, as I said at the at the top, America, thankfully, does not have a government-owned monopoly responsible for domestic air travel. We should be very glad of that. However, the federal government does prohibit foreign airlines from operating flights between American cities from operating domestic flights. So that means Americans only have a few choices when it comes to flying domestically. If you want to go from Philadelphia to Denver or Seattle to San Antonio, you have to fly on an American-based airline. And uh, on some less commonly traveled routes, you might not have any choice at all. I live close to Charlottesville, Virginia. There's a nice small but nice little airport there in Charlottesville. There's only two different airlines that serve it, and they only have three flights a day. Could there be more? Possibly. So these restrictions on which airlines can operate where is something called cabotage. And the laws that restrict cabotage by foreign-owned and operated airlines are really just protectionism for the shrinking number of American-based airlines. And as always, consumers end up paying the price for this protectionism. A 2020 paper from the Brookings Institution and Washington State University found that American travelers would realize $1.6 billion in annual benefits from the entry of just one foreign airline into the United States, just a single one. Some of those benefits would be pretty straightforward, lower prices created by greater competition, but other benefits, the paper says, would likely materialize too. If given the chance to expand their operations in the United States, low-cost European airlines like Ryanair could bring their innovative business models to this side of the Atlantic. Now, I've been lucky enough to do some traveling in Europe recently, and I can tell you firsthand that there's a lot of things Europeans don't get right. I mean, nobody has air conditioning. The washing machines are too small and take too long. There's a lot of problems in Europe. But one thing they do get right culturally is, is airlines, is, is flying. You can fly basically anywhere across the European continent for less than $100, and you can do it without booking months in advance. That's largely because they abolished a lot of the domestic restrictions that existed there uh, decades ago. The elimination of those national monopolies, the elimination of those cabotage laws and regulations in Europe produced a flourishing market that includes a lot of your legacy brands. It includes Air France and Lufthansa, the the companies that you've heard of that have been around for decades. But there's a lot of startups operating in Europe too, like Ryanair and Wow and and others that most Americans have never heard of. And the result has been lower prices and more options for consumers, for people who are looking to go from one city to another. Allowing foreign competition wouldn't necessarily solve all the problems that naturally occur when millions of Americans decide to travel over the same weekend, of course. There's only so many seats in the airport bar. There's only so many planes that can take off and land every hour. And as far as I can tell, no airline in the world has solved the problem of screaming children kicking the back of your seat. But even so, more competition would force existing American airlines to offer better service or lower fares or find other ways to bundle those things together. And more capacity, of course, means more opportunities for Americans to visit their far-flung loved ones, not only during the holidays, but throughout the rest of the year, too. And if famously over-regulated places like Europe and Argentina can embrace the benefits of competition and a free market when it comes to flying, I mean, what the heck are we waiting for, guys? America can't afford to fall behind places like that. I'm Eric Bang for Reason Magazine. You can check out more of our coverage of everything going on in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: The bipartisan immigration deal failed to gain enough support to pass, raising the question as to whether or not Congress is capable of coming together to address significant problems confronting the nation. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA has this week's American Radio Journal commentary. There
4: aren't many things on which PBS's Lisa Desjardins, Reason Magazine's Fiona Harrigan, the Cato Institute, CNN, The LA Times editorial board and Fox News agree, but one of them is that our immigration system is dysfunctional. I would argue that the U.S. House of Representatives and the United States Senate are equally dysfunctional in developing legislation to fix it. There are times when policy trumps, if you'll forgive my use of the expression, politics and times when politics trumps policy. Let's look at a couple of examples and see if we can discern a workable rationale for deciding which is right in a given circumstance. The most obvious example of when policy should trump politics is when the nation's very existence is at stake, such as in wartime. The national interest must prevail over any partisan political interests. Many people like to say that in such cases we should be bipartisan but I'd suggest that an even better word for such times would be nonpartisan, not bipartisan, where the two parties preen about their mutual cooperation, but nonpartisan, where they simply abandon all references to party and show unity behind a single national effort. Somewhat lesser crises and emergencies do call for bipartisanship. An example would be the COVID pandemic. President Trump could easily have said that COVID called for us to come together to try to stamp out the virus with a call for national unity. Unfortunately, he missed that opportunity, and it probably cost him his re-election. Category 5 floods and hurricanes likewise call for bipartisanship, although it hasn't always worked out that way. The financial crisis of 2008 was another major event that called for bipartisanship. It wasn't quite as existential as a war, but it was nonetheless a true crisis. It required a level of compromise to address it responsibly, and that's exactly what happened. That's the way the executive and legislative branches are supposed to work in disasters and emergencies. The current border or immigration crisis is the number one issue in the minds of the American people. It's front and center in the 2024 presidential election. Does it call for bipartisanship, or is it better recognized as a political issue with all the posturing and rhetoric that implies? It's a choice, and the choice has been made. There was an attempt to create a bipartisan compromise by Oklahoma U.S. Senator James Lankford and Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema. It took months of negotiation to come up with a bill acceptable to both of the negotiating senators. Before the 300-page bill was even released, several Republican senators and House members said they would vote against it because, in the words of John Avalon of CNN, they don't believe that a Democratic president will implement the tough measures they believe are necessary. But that argument doesn't hold water if they really believe that this is the most urgent issue facing our nation. If a Republican is elected next year, They can presumably deal with those deficiencies. Refusing to support a bill that could help solve the problem with concrete measures negotiated by conservative colleagues in the Senate shows a fundamental lack of faith in deliberative democracy. Compromise is not the same thing as surrender. Close quote. Now Donald Trump has weighed in, urging Republicans to oppose the bill and boasting to welcome the blame for killing it. Even James Lankford himself is falling into line behind Trump. So the strategic question before us is, is it politically savvy to choose to oppose a less-than-perfect border bill? Killing the bill makes political sense only if it is clear that the majority of the American people are opposed to compromise on this issue. My guess is that they aren't. If I'm right, then killing the bipartisan border bill is a political blunder that will be identified as the responsibility of the Republican Party. Getting on the wrong side of the number one political issue in the country is political malpractice, and it will be costly in November. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WRYV-FM in Milroy, Pennsylvania, WGFPAM in Webster, Massachusetts, along with Fort WorthBeachRadio.com in Fort Worth, Florida. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, americanradiojournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.